When I was a student back at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, I had an interesting experience on one occasion. My room was on the 12th floor of Culbertson Hall, which was the men's dorm. And one day I was in the process of short-sheeting a friend's bed as a practical joke when all of a sudden I heard him coming down the hall unexpectedly. I knew I was caught, so I ran out of John's room and I ran down the hallway to the stairway to get away from him. I opened the door to the stairwell and I jumped, instead of going down the stairs, I jumped all the way down the stairs, landed at the platform on the bottom, it would would have been the the, uh, landing there between floors, but when I landed, I landed on the side of my foot and everything in my ankle gave way. I was taken to the emergency room where I had my ankle x-rayed and I didn't have any broken bones, but I had damaged all the ligaments and tendons and whatever else is inside there. So I had to wear a cast and be on crutches for a long time, several weeks. In fact, I was told it would have probably been better had I just broken the bone and not done all the other stuff. Well, it wasn't too long on these crutches. It wasn't too long until my underarms began to be so sore from the crutches. So I shifted my weight to the palms of my hands. Well, then they began to be sore as well, so I tried to compensate another way. And in time, it seemed like every part of my body was hurting as a result of trying to compensate for one thing. My ankle was not functioning properly. That was a painful illustration to me of what happens in the body of Christ when everyone doesn't function and do his part. The Holy Spirit certainly knows that which is why he guided Paul to write what he did in Romans chapter 12. So if you are not already there, turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 12, and please follow along as as I read the first eight verses, though we won't quite get that far in this message. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, or I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. As you can see from reading through these verses, the subject of this text is what we might call body life. These verses tell us how we should function as members of the body of Christ. But before we get too far along, let me say this. Just because you attend this church body that doesn't automatically mean that you are a member of the body of Christ. 
I don't want to simply assume that everyone here understands that. When the New Testament talks about the body of Christ, it is referring to all those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. When a person repents of his sin and receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the New Testament teaches that an exchange takes place. That person is spiritually taken out of the kingdom of darkness and spiritually placed into the body of Christ. That transaction is referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit then has happened to every true Christian. Please hear that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has happened to every true Christian. Everyone who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has been spiritually placed into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's why I said that just because you attend this church body or some church body doesn't mean that you're a member of the body of Christ. All those and only those who have personally received Christ are members of the body of Christ. So just because you're here today, that doesn't make you a member of the body of Christ. If you know Christ as your own Lord and Savior, if you have received Him, then you are a member of the body of Christ. It's it's important that we understand that as we work our way through these verses because they are telling us how the body of Christ should function and relate to one another. And these verses teach us that both unity and diversity are necessary if the body is to function properly. Both elements are essential to a healthy body. We have unity because of our oneness in Christ, but we have diversity because each of us has different abilities and different gifts. So that is the overall thrust of this passage that we just read. Now, since this text is about spiritual gifts, and we're going to be looking at it for a couple weeks, I think it would be helpful to first get a general understanding of the subject of spiritual gifts before we dig into this text. So I want to make some, just some general comments or observations, uh, observations on the topic of spiritual gifts, and then I will support them with passages primarily from 1 Corinthians, though we won't take the time to turn to all of them. You can just simply jot them down, because this is what we're going to use just for an introduction. So here we go. Observation number one, spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. Spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. You may be able to sing, write, speak, or do something else very well, but that is not technically a spiritual gift. Now, you may use your natural abilities to minister your giftedness, but Paul clearly distinguishes between the two in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. You see, there is a difference between being able to speak well and the spiritual gift of teaching and preaching, even though the two may work hand in hand. I mean, surely you know some people who are good public speakers, but that doesn't mean that they're effective at teaching and preaching Scripture. They have a gift, maybe they have a natural talent, a natural ability to speak well, but that's not the same as a spiritual gift. Let me mention another example. You may have the natural ability to write well, but your spiritual gift could be mercy. Now, you may use your writing ability to communicate mercy in an effective way, or encouragement to others, but writing is not the spiritual gift. 
Spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. They are not exactly the same. Observation number two, gifts are not a sign of spirituality. Just because someone is gifted doesn't mean that he is walking with the Lord or that he is spiritual. We've all heard these stories, and they are horrific stories, of some high-profile Christian leader who is maybe a, a pastor or a Christian leader of some kind, and all of a sudden it comes out that for months he's been having an adulterous affair, and you would have never known it by his preaching over the last six months or his leadership or whatever. And people are often shocked by that, which we should be shocked. But part of the shock is the assumption that gifts are a sign of spirituality, which is not the case. Just because someone is gifted doesn't mean he's walking with the Lord or he's spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul said that the Corinthian church had all the gifts, but you know very well that the Corinthian church was the most carnal group of Christians in the New Testament era. In 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul said that their gatherings, when they came together, it did more harm than good. They would have been better not even to meet as believers. So there was a church with all the gifts, and yet when they met together, they were worse off for doing so. There is a segment of Christianity today that says, if you are spiritual, then you'll have this certain gift. Or if you have this certain gift, that means you are spiritual But the church in Corinth is proof that gifts are not a sign of spirituality. Observation number three. The subject of giftedness or spiritual gifts is an important one for us to understand. In 1 Corinthians 12.1, Paul said, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant of the subject of spiritual gifts. And whenever Paul used that phrase, I do not want you to be ignorant, it was his way of saying, listen, this is very important. I want you to know this. Every Christian, then, should have some awareness, some familiarity with the subject of spiritual gifts and what the Scripture has to say about that subject. The truths concerning spiritual gifts are important to know and to act on. Observation number four, the Holy Spirit is the source of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that the Holy Spirit divides up the gifts as He chooses as he wills. In other words, you and I can't choose our own spiritual gifts. We cannot demand from God certain gifts. That is the sovereign choice of God the Holy Spirit. To take this a step further, you can't get a gift by praying for it, and neither can we give someone a gift by laying hands on them to receive a certain gift. We don't have that apostolic authority. And yet today, as I'm sure you know, many Christians will urge other Christians to experience a certain gift, even if God hasn't chosen to give that gift. There are those, for example, who say that every Christian should speak in tongues. Every Christian. This is the sign of being filled with the Spirit. But 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, the Spirit divides up the gifts as He sees fit. Observation number five, the gifts are given for the edification of the body. Nowhere does the New Testament condone anyone using a gift for his own personal benefit. And yet many Christians today claim that is exactly how they use their particular gift. 1 Corinthians 14.12, 1 Corinthians 14.26 teach that the gifts are 
for the edification of the body, for other people. So as you minister your gift, I am encouraged, strengthened, and built up. As I minister my gift, hopefully you are edified. But there's even more to it than that because, and please listen to this concept carefully, your gift not only benefits me directly when you minister to me in some way or minister to someone else, your gift also should benefit me indirectly also. What do I mean by that? Let me illustrate. Let's say you have the gift of giving and you give generously to the work of Christ. By you exercising your gift, we should all learn how to give more sacrificially. We should all be challenged by that example and also then reflect on our own lives. How do I do in that area? The same thing goes with the gift of mercy. As I, this is one that's very true for me. I can't say that I have that gift uh, you know, automatically or, or as a result of the Spirit giving that gift. But as I have watched people in our church family minister to others who are, in, who are hurting, I have learned immensely how to get better at that. It's not natural or even a gifted thing for me. But as I watch others do that, then I learn to do it better. And the same thing goes with helps, administration, all the gifts. As those gifts are expressed, we benefit directly by receiving the ministry of those gifts, if you're on the receiving end. But we also benefit by learning how to do those same things as we watch one another serve. So the gifts are for the benefit of others. After World War II, a group of German students volunteered to help rebuild an English cathedral that had been severely damaged by German bombs. As work progressed, they became concerned about a large statue of Jesus whose arms were outstretched and beneath, uh, beneath was a, the inscription, Come unto me, out of Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor are heavy laden. They had particular difficulty trying to restore the hands which had completely been destroyed in the war. After much discussion, and I think this was brilliant, they decided to let the hands remain missing, and they changed the inscription to read this, Christ has no hands but ours. That was a profound insight because, in a sense, that's the idea behind spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gifts us so we can be Christ's hands to minister to other people. Observation number six, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are not the same thing. The fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is character traits we should all possess. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, or temperance. The fruit of the Spirit should be present as we minister our spiritual gifts. However, it is possible to minister your gift without the fruit of the Spirit as the Corinthians were doing. And it's also possible to have the fruit of the Spirit but not be ministering your spiritual gift because the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are not the same thing. And that leads to observation number seven. You can have a gift and not be using it. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul told Timothy not to neglect his spiritual gift. Timothy, don't neglect it, which implies that we can. It's something we could do. 
In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift of God that was in him. Again, implication is we can allow it to just be dormant. And we don't exercise our gift. So it's possible to have a gift and not be using it. Observation number eight. There's a sense in which each gift is a characteristic of Christ himself. You could say that Christ had all these gifts, all of these abilities, all these characteristics in him. He was the ultimate teacher. He was the ultimate giver. He was the ultimate mercy shower. He was the ultimate leader. He, he was the ultimate in all of these areas. So as we minister our gifts, as the Holy Spirit gifts us to be able to minister, then there's a sense in which we manifest Christ to the world. Observation number nine, it is possible that there are more spiritual gifts than just the ones mentioned in the New Testament. The reason why I say that is because we know for a fact that Paul never intended to give a comprehensive list of the gifts to any of the churches to whom he wrote. Here in Romans, he mentions a few specific gifts, but he doesn't do it to make an exhaustive list. He's simply giving examples. In 1 Corinthians, he does the same thing. He talks about spiritual gifts, and he just gives some examples. In Ephesians, he does the same thing. So it's obvious that he never intended to give a comprehensive list of the gifts to any of the churches to whom he wrote. So it is possible that there are other spiritual gifts than just the ones mentioned in the New Testament. After all, Paul's purpose was not to give a technical definition of all the possibilities. He, his purpose wasn't to give an exhaustive list. This is what makes it difficult to do a really technical study on spiritual gifts because oftentimes people want a very precise definition, but here's the problem. We're not given the definitions in the New Testament. Paul just mentions the gifts as examples. He doesn't do it as a theological treatise on the subject. He just encourages people to serve and says, because you may have the gift of mercy or leadership or administration or whatever it is. So Paul's purpose was not to give a te technical definition. His purpose was to encourage believers to minister to others, to serve. So whatever we do, we dare not miss that point. Some Christians get so caught up in studying the spiritual gifts and Trying to, define, trying to define them, that they missed the whole point. Whenever Paul taught on spiritual gifts or Peter, the point was to encourage believers to minister to others. So Paul wants us to understand, maybe better stated, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that God has equipped us to be able to serve him so there are no excuses for a Christian who doesn't serve. That's the point. I remember a while back hearing some football analysts saying that the great running backs of the NFL like Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders can't explain to you exactly what they do that makes them great. They can't even define it. They just, they just go out on the football field and do it, and it's, it's effective. It works. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, that is so similar to the way spiritual gifts work. It's not something you can completely define and analyze and categorize because it's an expression of who God has made us as people and who God uh, has made us as new creations in Christ. So we simply seek to minister to people and God makes it effective due to the giftedness he has given us. So as we consider the subject of spiritual gifts in this message 
and in the next one. I don't want us to get so analytical that we miss the point uh, that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing. The point is this. God has gifted you, whether you realize it or not, and he has given you the ability to serve him effectively in some way in the body of Christ. And let me add this further clarification. When I say God has given you the the giftedness to be able to serve him, I'm not talking about official position. I'm not talking about an official office. Now, maybe your giftedness would go with an official position, like you're the, you know, fifth grade Sunday school teacher. But when you think about serving the Lord and ministry, don't think of position. Don't think of some official category. Just think of serving the Lord and ministering to other people. For some, it will be in official capacities. Others, it's just in relationships. It's in interpersonal relationships. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because this is always asked whenever this topic is, is brought up or taught on, etc. How do you find out what your spiritual gift is? Well, there are lots of methods that are proposed today, and some of them can be helpful. But I'm personally convinced that the best way is just to try, just to get involved and try to meet needs in the body. In time, you'll begin to see strengths that the Holy Spirit has given you, and the body of Christ will affirm your giftedness. I remember years ago when I first submitted my life to Christ, I was in a church in Florida, and I I wanted to serve the Lord. I didn't know there was any such thing as spiritual gifts. I'd never heard of that, but I just wanted to serve the Lord. So I did anything I could, could do to meet needs in the body. I would read the bulletin every Sunday, and I would see this thing advertised that. And I, I, through, through my time there, I taught children Sunday school. I drove the bus for church outings. I worked with the youth group. I did visitation ministry. I worked in a prison ministry. I organized activities. You name it, and I did it. And in time, I began to be drawn more to certain areas of ministry, and others in the body would affirm certain areas of giftedness. In fact, it was others in the body that encouraged me to prayerfully consider going into pastoral ministry. I never even thought about doing that, never even dreamed of it. But people in the body said, Brian, that's something you should prayerfully consider because when you share a devotional at a church picnic or this type of thing, the Lord seems to use you, so you should pray about doing that with your life. So that's how I came to find my niche in the body, just looking to serve and meet needs. After all, it's difficult to steer a parked car, is it not? It's much easier when it's moving. So if you have an earnest desire to serve the Lord and and just minister, and if you're attempting to meet needs and you're you're just trying to say, Lord, I'm available, I I just want to minister to other people, you'll begin to recognize your spiritual gift or your niche or your area of service. So with all that as background, let's begin to look at this text where Paul teaches on this important subject in verses 3 through 8. We'll only look at verse 3 and save the rest of the verses for the next message. So verse 3, notice what Paul says here. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The first thing I want to emphasize is the word for at the beginning of this verse. That lets us know that what Paul is going to talk about in verses 3 through 8 is connected to verses 1 and 2. Now, I know that doesn't sound very profound, but the fact of the matter is many Christians fail to see the connection. Many Christians have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2, and they don't have a clue what Romans 12, 3 says. 
So they don't know the connection that's there. So allow me to explain how these verses are related. You will remember that in verses 1 and 2, we are exhorted to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And we are exhorted to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we can experience God's will for us. Then, verses 3 through 8, in those verses, Paul launches into this section on spiritual gifts, and he begins with the word for. So here's a very practical way to know if you have really presented yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Are you ministering to other people? If not, then based on the relationship of these verses, it's valid to say that you haven't really presented yourself to God as a living sacrifice. You see, it's easy for us to define verses 1 and 2 the way we want to define them in a very ethereal way. But if we really want to get practical about the idea of presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, then we need to ask ourselves the the question, if we are ministering our spiritual gifts to others in the body of Christ, are you? If not, then based on the relationship of these verses, it's valid to say that you haven't really presented yourself to God as a living sacrifice. We can take this even a step further. The end of verse 2 refers to us experiencing God's good and well-pleasing and perfect will. Then, in verses 3 through 8, Paul launches into this section on spiritual gifts, and he begins with the word for, to tell us that the thoughts are connected. Therefore, it's valid to say this, If you are not ministering to other people in some way, now again, I'm not talking about official position. Just if you are not ministering to people in some way, then you are not experiencing God's will for your life. You ever thought about it that way? Once again, it's very easy for us to talk nebulously about God's will But if we really want to get practical about it, God's will for every one of us in his family, in the body, is to serve, is to minister. So are you? If not, then based on the relationship of these verses, it's valid to say that you are not experiencing God's will for your life. God's will for every one of us in his family is to serve, is to minister. That's what we're exhorted to do in this passage. Also, please notice here in verse 3, please notice the word everyone or every man. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Oh, I cannot emphasize this point enough. It is so important that everyone serves in some way, that everyone ministers, everyone seeks to exercise his or her spiritual gift. Let me be even more specific than that. Christian, child of God, it's so important that you minister and exercise your spiritual gift. If you don't get anything else out of this message, please get that. It is important that you minister and serve and exercise your spiritual gift. That's the emphasis of the word everyone or every man. Again, I want to emphasize, this may be 
completely unofficial. It may be totally relational. It may be behind the scenes. It may be up front. Don't limit the categories. It's just a matter of are you seeking to serve the Lord by ministering to other people? That's the point. Then Paul issues a warning to each of us here in verse 3 not to think more highly of ourselves than what we ought to think. That's what he says. He says, I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That, of course, is a warning against pride. There's no room for pride in our lives because all our natural abilities and all our spiritual gifts are from God. We didn't have anything to do with how God blessed us at birth with our natural abilities. You didn't determine that in your mother's womb. I think I'm going to be highly intelligent, or I think I'm going to be very athletic, or I think, you know, you didn't, you didn't have anything to do with that in your mother's womb, and we didn't have anything to do with how God blessed us with our spiritual gifts, how he put us together spiritually. He chose that sovereignly. So there's no room for pride. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? It's very similar to what Paul is saying here. We need to guard against the pride that comes from assuming that we are somehow the ones responsible for our gifts and our abilities. Furthermore, pride is often the very thing that keeps Christians from getting involved in serving other members in the body of Christ. Does it surprise you to hear that? That doesn't sound right, does it? Pride is often the thing that keeps people from getting involved in serving. We might tend to think that the problem is what our culture says today, low self-esteem. But listen, a low self-esteem is often the result of too much focus on self rather than focus on others. When we get our focus off ourselves and on to others, then we often lose ourselves, forget about ourselves, in meeting the needs of others. Do you remember this story from Dale Galloway's book, Dream a New Dream? I quote, Little Chad was a shy, quiet young fellow. One day he came home and told his mother he'd like to make a valentine for everyone in his class. Her heart sank. She thought, I wish he wouldn't do that. Because she had watched the children when they walked home from school. Her Chad was always behind them. They laughed and hung on to each other and talked to each other, but Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she would go along with her son, so she purchased the paper and glue and crayons. For three whole weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 Valentines. Valentine's Day dawned, and Chad was beside himself with excitement. He carefully stacked them up, put them in a bag, and bolted out the door. His mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve them up warm and nice with a cool glass of milk when he came home from school. She just knew he would be disappointed. Maybe that would ease the pain a little. It hurt her to think that he wouldn't get many Valentines, maybe none at all. That afternoon, she had the cookies and milk on the table. When she heard the children outside, she looked out the window. Sure enough, here they came, laughing and having the best time. And as always, there was Chad in the rear. He walked a little faster than usual. She fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside. His arms were empty, she noticed, and when the door opened, she choked back tears. Mommy has some warm cookies and milk for you, she said, but he hardly heard her words. He just marched right on by, his face aglow, and all he could say was, not a one, not a one.
Her heart sank. And then he added, I didn't forget a one, not a single one. What a powerful example of the way we need to get our eyes off ourselves and lose ourselves in ministering to others. That will certainly help what our society calls low self-esteem. God has equipped us to be able to serve others, so we should get our eyes off ourselves. One of the neat byproducts of that is what it does for us mentally. In his book, Psychological Seduction, The Failure of Modern Psychology, Professor William K. Kilpatrick writes this, quote, Extreme forms of mental illness are always extreme cases of self-absorption. The distinctive quality, the thing that literally sets paranoid people apart, is hyper-self-consciousness, end quote. That is a very insightful observation. Few things are more damaging to a healthy church and a healthy body than a bunch of people focused on self. It's cancerous to the body. So here in verse 3, Paul gives a warning against pride. Dr. Stuart Briscoe put it this way, The reminder that all we have is ours through the grace of God is most appropriate to those who have a tendency to arrogance. The reminder that they are sons of God, gifted for His purpose that they might be to His glory, is equally appropriate to those who grovel in their own inadequacy under a cloak of false humility. End quote. That last thought is important to take note of because Paul not only warns about pride in this verse, he also says we should think soberly about ourselves and someone who is always putting himself or herself down as being good for nothing is not thinking soberly. If you are a child of God, then he has gifted you to serve. Don't you dare insult God by saying you are good for nothing, you can't serve him, God can't use you to minister to other people. That is an insult to Almighty God. That's an insult to your Heavenly Father. It's an insult to the Holy Spirit who has gifted you to be able to serve. That's not thinking soberly. John Murray put it this way, quote, If we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace, and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for the sanctification of of others. End quote. One more quote. Lenski said it this way Sober and sane thinking neither exaggerates nor depreciates such gifts as God Himself has bestowed. God made this apportionment in His wisdom and in His love. To appreciate properly the portion you have received is to honor God, is to be of a sober and a balanced mind in regard to your own person, end quote. Now, what I want us to see in those quotes, because those men say it so much better than I could, is the fact that pride can be overvaluing ourselves, or it can also take the form of constantly putting ourselves down. That's why Paul gives this warning here in verse 3. He says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly 
as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. It's so important that we see this warning against pride in relation to spiritual gifts because it's very damaging, very damaging to a church body when a believer overrates himself and tries to do a ministry he cannot do. And it's very damaging to the church as a whole when Christians are like the Corinthians who wanted to have the spectacular gifts, the showy gifts. Instead, here verse 3 says we should think soberly or accurately. Then the last phrase in verse 3 says this. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Please again notice each one. God has dealt to each one. Every child of God. God has given each believer some faith by which to serve him. And here's the point. So we need to make sure we do it. God has graciously gifted us uniquely for what he wants us to do. Now, we don't all do the same things. But we ought to be faithful to do what God has gifted us to do. That's what the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is calling on us to do here in verse 3. Now, in conclusion, let me give a very practical application to all of us, and it is this. One word. Serve. Serve. That's, that's why we sang the song earlier, Make me a servant, humble and meek. Serve. Look for needs in the body and meet them. Again, not just official things like you, you see some official position that's open or official capacity. That's great if, if that's an opening and you, by God's grace, want to see if you can meet that need. But don't limit your thinking to just official positions. Look for needs in the body. That is, in people's lives and seek to meet them. Look for places to serve and serve. Don't wait for someone to ask you. Don't wait for... A board member to ask you. Take the initiative. It's that basic. You don't have to take some complicated personality inventory test to find out what your spiritual gift is. I'm not implying that those are useless. I've taken those things before. I remember in seminary they had us take those, and they can be helpful. But, but the, the point is jump in. You can take 50 of those tests, but if you just sit back and you never serve, it's not going to do any good. So jump in. And as you're involved in the body of Christ, as you're involved in ministry, some of it may be behind the scenes, maybe some of it up front or whatever the capacity, you'll begin to see where your interests are. You'll begin to see areas where the Lord uses you more effectively than in other areas. That's the most practical way of finding out your spiritual gift. But whatever you do, and I'm saying it this way because I've known far too many Christians through the years who do it this way, don't sit back and hope it will pop out of the air. It's not going to happen that way. You're not going to sit back and God's going to write it in the cloud. I want you in the counseling ministry. I want you in the youth ministry. I want you to be a mercy show. It's not going to come to you that way. It's not the way the Lord works. Get involved. If you want to know a practical way of expressing the fact that you have given yourself to God as a living sacrifice then minister to the body of Christ. If you want to know a practical way of experiencing God's will for your life, then minister to others in the family of God. As the popular slogan goes today, 
popularized by Nike, just do it. Just do it. That's what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do in this passage. Let's pray together. Father, you are so gracious to us, not only to save us out of a life of sin, not only to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness, but to place us in your family and place us in the body of Christ. And not only have you forgiven our sins and placed the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our record or in our spiritual bank account, but you've also gifted us to be able to serve you. You've gifted us to to be a tool in your hand, to be an encouragement to others, or to be a help to others, or to be a challenge to others, to be an instructor of others, or whatever the capacity may be. Some in official roles, roles, many in unofficial capacities, but you have not left us helpless. You haven't called us to serve you and then left us on our own, trying to figure out if we can even get it done or do it. No, you've called us to serve But in the process, at the same time, you have gifted us to be able to serve, whether that is in capacity such as uh, in helps or leadership or in mercy or in giving or whatever the case may be. All of these things are so important because they are seen in, in aspects of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate teacher, the ultimate mercy shower, the ultimate encourager, the ultimate leader, the ultimate in all of those things. So, Father, as we seek just to serve, as we, as we seek just to touch other people's lives and help in some way, give us direction to guide our thoughts and our paths into the niche that you have for us in your family, into the, the place where we can be most effective. And for some, that may be up front. For others, that may be behind the scenes. For some, it will be in official positions or capability or capacities. In others, it will be completely unofficial, totally relational. Whatever the case may be, may we, each and every one of us, find our niche, find our way to serve so that we can manifest Christ to one another and to the world as we pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen.